Okay, so we, if, I think there's handouts at the back if you didn't grab one. We're, this is, I believe, our last lesson on how to study the Bible. We kind of introed it several weeks ago, interpretive fallacies, right? And so, I always like to draw my diagram. So we, we're looking at, we have God and man. And we have Revelation. And we have general revelation in the world, but we have specifically revelation through the Bible. And we're just trying to focus on how to study the Bible in such a way that we can see and hear and understand what God is revealing to us through the method that he's given us and that he's chosen to use the Bible. And he assists us, right? He assists us in that through the Holy Spirit. And so even, even if... Um, an unbeliever were to read the scriptures. It is the work of the Holy Spirit during that time to open the eyes and the heart of us when we were dead and completely blind. Okay? And so one of the things we're trying to do is kind of in that, we're trying to allow um, the Holy Spirit to take away kind of those things that are part of our flesh that can distract or um, confuse or get in the way or muddy up something that God wants to make clear to us. All right. And some, some of the things that we talked about at the beginning, let's kind of flip through. We had uh, one was taking passages out of context, and there were several ways you could do that, proof texting, isolating, spiritualizing. And so kind of as we go through where we're at right now, I believe was page four. Okay, you guys want to flip to page four. We kind of left off in that area. So modernizing the Bible. And this is something that um, happens kind of all the time, right? People who are alive today, they're the, they're the only ones that are still speaking, right? So it's easy for us to downgrade all the ones who have died because they're not here to, to voice their disagreement. So we have this tendency to modernize and to say, well, right now we're at the best place of understanding than all the other times leading up to this point. So when you think about accommodation, usually this is saying you have a belief, viewing scripture through the lens of human reason, and maybe there's something like, um, example would be homosexual advocates will take a modern understanding of homosexuality and read that back into the Bible. Okay? So let's look, what's Romans, would someone read for us? Romans 1, 26 and 27. <coughs> For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing in indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Yeah, so we have a couple of verses here talking about this unnatural relation. And so for a proponent that believes in that homosexuality is good, it's endorsed, it's blessed by God, we have to we have to reconcile this. In some way they have to accommodate the Bible. Okay? So let's look look at one thing that might be an argument, one way of accommodating. So someone wanna read Andrew, we want to read that paragraph they believe. They believe that Paul is condemning certain homosexual acts, not homosexuality for the homosexual or the responsible practice of homosexual behavior. 
Whether he knew it or not, we now know that some people constitutionally prefer members of the same sex. They experience no attraction to members of the opposite sex. Therefore, we must distinguish between the invert and pervert, between inversion and perversion. Perverts and not gen genuinely homosexual, they engage in homosexual practices, although they are heterosexuals, but they commit heterosexual acts through though homosexuals. Inverts, on the other hand, are constitutionally gay. Their sexual orientation is the inverse of heterosexuals and for them. Engaging in homosexual acts is normal. In Romans 1, Paul condemns perversion, not inversion. Yeah. Okay. Make, makes perfect sense? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, right, what's going on? And what is their, in this case, when, when a person holds this, are they attempting to reject the Bible or are they attempting to accept the Bible? Yeah, they want to accept it, right? They want to find a way to say that I can accept it and follow that, right? And so right, they say their support for this view is adduced, is that how you say Deduced, I don't know, from Paul's claim that those he discusses changed or left the natural use of their sexuality for that which was unnatural or against nature. Yeah, the continue of the quote. Paul only condemns homosexuals committed by apparently homosexual persons. Okay, so let's pick out a few reasons. Let's say that you have, maybe it's a person um, who attends a different church and maybe they affirm homosexuality. You're talking with them over lunch and they start to go into kind of this explanation. How would you counsel them? What would you maybe start to bring up? How would you engage them on this? You can cheat and look down below if you need it. Yeah, it's definitely reading in modern psychological construct into Paul's words. I mean, it, it's Paul would have no clue what this person is talking about. Yeah. You could kind of talk about that sense in which, you know, are you, do we need modern understanding to, to help out the scriptures in a sense? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like uh, one of the dictionary debates right now is they're changing the definition of man and woman in the dictionary to accommodate trans men and trans women. Mm -hmm. And it would be like just taking that new definition of man and woman and then reading it back into mm -hmm. the Bible and saying that's what they meant. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. She thinks so too. She agrees. Yeah, so there's a couple things. I mean, one, you could focus on the modern for a moment. Like, you could respond that there's, there's really no proof of this kind of theory, this modern theory. Um, that there's a constitutional homosexual for whom homosexual acts follow a genetic condition. So you could, you could start there, right? Um, but really, that's kind of secondary to kind of the, the key point, is that our modern understanding doesn't really address what the original author meant, right? So there's no reason to believe that even if it was true, that Paul believed that it was true, or that he would have any sort of grid for that view 
both here or any other of his, of his writings. So, and then we've talked about this before. This is kind of a, a case of eisegesis. Remember, what, what does that mean when you do an eisegesis? You mean reading your own meaning into the Bible? Yeah, you have a meaning out here, and you're trying to find it or put it into the scripture. And, you know, not that it's easy to do, but as much as we can, we want to do ex exegesis, where we kind of find all the meaning there, right? What was the, the original author? What was the issue? What was the culture? What was, what was he saying at that point? Um, another example might be saying that when you reread poor in spirit, right? It's low self-esteem. Yeah. Can you guys think of other kind of words, phrases, concepts that there's a modern change or maybe even just in our culture, in our country, in our time that we're trying to put that back into the scriptures? I, I was having a conversation, a bit of a conversation, um, with a woman who was was proposing that First um, Timothy two, in which a woman should teacher have authority over men, um, was referring to um, the like a, a senior pastor role. Okay. And so the I, the, the concept of senior pastor um, I, is was something that I think she brought into that mm -hmm. text, which I, I don't think scripture broadly uh, right. uses that concept or term. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. That's good. And there's, yeah. Any any others that you guys think of? That's good. It's kind of a broad one, but I mean, especially because there's so many definitions around it, but depending on what your definition of love is, Mm -hmm. You put your definition of love into the mm -hmm. Bible, yeah. you want it to mean, and that very much changes with the scriptures. Yeah. So. One I was thinking of too, uh, we've been reading through First Peter in our Friday morning Bible study, is the modern context of what we view slavery. What is slavery? <laughs> and to try and think about the ancient world and the way in which government, politics, economics, the way in which slavery existed, what it was like, um, and try and understand the context of those commands toward masters and slaves, um, there might be kind of a modern association. Not that it's a huge difference, but I mean, there's a certain way in which it, the world was different. So we're kind of, some of these are similar. So number two, uh, is we call this not just uh, accommodation for looking for a specific view, but culturalizing. So this can happen a couple different ways. You could limit a text to a certain specific time in history or culture, saying that that was only for that time and culture and it does not apply um, to a wider application. Or it could be the opposite, extending a past practice or culture up forward into our time, which could have or should have been limited to something in the past, something previous. I accidentally printed my pages upside down, so every time I flip over, I have to. <laughs> that's worse. That's, that's horrible. I know. Why do they do that? Um, so, right, we often see this in gender issues, right? So, First Timothy, this is a good segue. Yeah, 2.12. That I do not allow women to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. So here is a possible 
explanation. Okay, Gabe, you got your hand up? No? Uh, somebody got, want to read this? Cole, you got it? I'm on page six. What's the following explanation? So uh, when we read that, we're like, oh, okay, well, we've got Priscilla, right? So you've got some things that you need to, we need to look into. Um, you can see there's kind of a note there that as we do some little bit uh, closer examination, we don't really know for sure if um, these women teachers were teaching over men in a public setting, a church service, a large gathering. And if we look at, that was... 1 Timothy 2.12, let's look at the next, verses 13 and 14. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived, fell into transgression. So does the appeal to creation imply a limited application, or for the prohibition, what do you think? Kind of, he gives a justification. Why is this true? He says, because from the creation. Does that tend to? Yeah, I think one thing is, um, you know, teaching is something that is, um, what they did back then is what we do now. Is As long as we've had churches, there have been teaching, and there mm-hmm. has been teaching of an assembly. Mm-hmm. And... Um, this is a little bit different from what you wear or how you publicly express femininity, like First mm-hmm. Corinthians chapter eleven. Mm-hmm. Um, but the appeal to creation is something that happened before the fall. Mm-hmm. You know, this was not a result of the fall. That this has to be the way it is. It's more of the yeah, kind of a yeah. You know, throughout all time, this is the way it should be because mm-hmm. of the way God designed gender to begin with. Yeah. Also, in this text, it's giving the reason why the command is given, and the reason is because of creation, people. Uh, whereas the, the argument, this argument that, that we put here is actually a very, very real argument. Naomi's been wrestling with this issue with a group of women trainers for a while now, actually. Mm-hmm. the highest levels of the free church of America. And, um, and, but they say that so women were untaught previously, or women were teaching false teaching. So I'll give all these reasons. Mm-hmm. The problem is the text doesn't actually say that. The text is the reason for this is the order of creation itself. And, and so in that sense, they're trying to modernize a, a new problem. Well, the actual problem was this, mm-hmm. but the text doesn't say that. The text actually tells us what the problem was, yeah. what the reasoning is. Yeah. We just don't want to follow that reasoning. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, so it wasn't, so you're saying like the, the modernization is not a reading into necessarily that application, but putting a different problem there that wasn't yeah, there. Yeah, a different in problem, and then they'll give a different reason that fits with what they want. Mm -hmm. But the text itself actually <coughs> gives you yeah. the reason. Yeah. It's right there. Yeah, it's, it, it does remind me a little bit of um, before the trans uh, culture changed, just the um, affirming of gay marriage and how um, there was a lot of um, places and times where you had the opportunity to talk about how marriage was defined the same way from Genesis to Jesus to the apostles. Like there was no change throughout. It always referred to the same passage from the beginning. And so it kind of helped you understand that it wasn't one way in the past or one way in a certain culture, but it was something that was universal for, for all times. So it can happen. That's something that can happen. And so again, the best place we want to look to the context and look for what was being said, what's the reasoning behind it, what was the argument. Any, any uh, other issues or topics you can think of that fit into this category of kind of either limiting it when it should be broad or broadening it when it should be limited? This would kind of fit into both this and the previous one that we talked about, but like how the world defines submission versus how it's biblically defined. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> goes into culture and just modernization. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like uh, what role does head coverings <laughs> and all that stuff play at that time and today and versus teaching, uh, leading in the home. So, uh, so, Scott, so many of these examples are um, the way that the Christian community, perhaps the, the more uh, progressive Christian community, is has uh, broadened or narrowed mm -hmm. the text. I hear. I think I know where you're going. What do you think are the like the the more conservative yeah. tendencies to narrow yeah. broaden the text? Yeah. So I think we talked about it a little bit, and I don't know if this would necessarily be modernizing, but like some of the Old Testament. Um, promises uh, towards Israel and saying that applies to either the church or to the United States. I think that I see kind of that thing that we are God's chosen people or we are this Christian nation and that sometimes those verses can be pulled out if my people were called by my name. Humble and so there's, there's almost this not, there not, there's not a realization that we're one of all the nations, the Gentile nations, that fit into that category. And there's believers among our nation, as there are among others. And kind of a, seeing our, our government and our democracy and our role as citizens in somewhat of a different light somehow than the role of citizen, Christian believers in other nations in other times. I think that's one that I see fairly frequently, I guess. Okay. Do you see, have you seen any or? I, uh, I'm curious, just perspective-wise. I think probably in another moment I would give you a list. Okay. I, I'm not okay. thinking of any in the moment. Can you guys can you guys think of any? Because sometimes that's yeah. I think a lot of times um, 
what does holiness look like mm -hmm. is often um, to use the extreme example would be the Mennonite Amish tradition mm -hmm. of this is worldly and this is not and and sometimes what's worldly or what's holy is really a reaction against the current status of the world so the world likes this you know they drink alcohol we don't mm -hmm. they um, you know, play cards for entertainment. We do. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? So yeah. there's kind of a um, conservatives are almost reactionary against progress and they can, mm -hmm. you know, almost like mm -hmm. whatever they want, we want to do the opposite. Yeah. I think that that thing, I don't know if it's here and now, but like, like you said, types of music, dancing, certain types of games, playing cards. I had an interesting conversation with. Um, Michael Sferinko, who was here, about, you know, when I was, uh, spent some time in a former, former Soviet country, they taught us this card game that was very common. And I said, oh, we should have a, play a game of this. And he's like, oh, I don't know if I can play that. You know, like, it's very looked down upon in that part of Russia as like, that's uh, kind of a, a heathen pagan practice. I think we, we do this a bit in the area of actually gender roles, mm -hmm. what masculinity and femininity looks like, mm -hmm. where there, the Bible talks a great deal about it, but we also then assume that our way of doing it is the biblical way. So women cook and men don't, mm -hmm. or men are the ones who fix cars and women don't, or all sorts of things that we do culturally yeah. that we end up thinking this is what biblical masculinity and femininity look like mm -hmm. that don't actually come from the text itself. Or we think 1950s nuclear family, that's what the Bible intended exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think we need to be careful about that because mm -hmm. we're going beyond what the text actually says. Yeah. And we're imposing sometimes uh, a cultural or a past cultural way of understanding mm -hmm. what a, a man and a woman is mm -hmm. on, the, on the more maybe right-wing side of yeah. the direction yeah. instead of progressive side. Yeah. And it can be, yeah, it can be a lot of cultural things like the way we dress. I know that... Um, that I think maybe we've had a conversation like you, if you travel to a church somewhere else that's in a different part of the country, uh, you might, you might like, oh, you know, like that's not, they're not being genuine because they're like dressing up to like look a certain way. They just want to be cool. Like that's just the way they dress. And like someone to come here, like they're just pretending to be a cowboy. Like they're not really, <laughs> you know, like, no, that's just the way we dress here. We actually wear a cowboy hat, you know? And so there's this assumption, like, that's different than us. Agree you say, yep? Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. No, go ahead. Um, yeah, I, I think at the heart of a lot of these, uh, these good discussions are, how do I read and interpret the scripture to support what I want? Mm -hmm. Is the question behind a lot of it. Yeah, and I think, too, so there's... There's the, we have something, and oftentimes we, we don't like consciously tell ourselves we're doing that. Mm -hmm. Like we have this belief that we want to be true, and it takes someone else pointing out to us. Um, I do think it's a great argument to, when you have the opportunity, you know, visit, um, you know, get outside of our state, our country, you know, if you can, to see believers, or at least speak with believers in other contexts to understand how the the nations worship the Lord and not just how we do in Emporia. Okay, that's good. That's good. So that's culturalizing, which I'm now. Let's see which page am I on? What page are we on? 
Six. Six. Right at the bottom. Twisting. Okay. Right foot green, right? We're going to do twister. So this is distorting scripture beyond what the original audience would have recognized. Um, so giving historically accepted biblical words, new definitions. We talked about that a little bit. Uh, for instance, one popular author redefines sin as any human condition or act that robs God of glory by stripping one of his children of their right to divine dignity. This helps to maintain a positive or self-esteem theology which ignores any doctrine that might harm a person's positive self-image. So things like being sinful, um, wicked, um, all the things that were described in, in Romans and in other parts. So you have uh, redefining, there's anglicizing, and this happens in, in different parts of the country. Uh, but reaching inaccurate conclusions by drawing theology from English text alone. Uh, like this quote, if the King James Version was good enough for the Apostle Paul, it's good enough for me. <laughs> they would be wise to understand that the original text is inspired, not the 400 year, uh, or 400 year old meaning like 400 year uh, from now, right? Uh, translation from the 1600s. Another example would be the Wesleyan teaching on perfectionism from the King James translation. So yeah, that's kind of a tip off if they say, well, if you look at the King James and that version, and they, they really focus on, you've got to look at this version to get the real meaning of the text. That's kind of, can be a tip off. And then a third one might be mysticizing, finding hidden meanings in scripture. You can only understand these if you know the secret code. There was a, the Omega Code was this the nineties? Have you ever seen that? I want to say I saw. I have. I want to say I've seen it. It was like a pre-Left Behind version of the Christian. Yeah, it was a terrible Christian action movie put together by Trinity Broadcast Network. Oh yeah, TBN. And um, the plot was if you kind of look at these texts of Scripture and instead of reading it, you know, the correct way. You do crossword style, you know, word search style thing. Yeah. You can find like secret messages it. that actually predict the end of the world, and you might be able to stop it. Oh. So, was, uh, yeah, and they had a whole book about it, and it was, you know, kind of put forward on TV, and it's like this new way of understanding the Bible. Yes. And that's kind of right, a big red flag when it's like the new way. This yeah. is, we finally found a way to understand what no one has understood, even the authors. Didn't understand. <laughs> Out of these three, have you guys run into redefining, anglicizing, mysticizing? Have you had any conversations with people who have kind of used one of these or had one of these errors? I've had like a conversation that wasn't necessarily perhaps successful or fruitful, <laughs> but it's difficult when you get in the weeds of that. Like, where do I go with this? Mm -hmm. like, especially where. Do you remember what it was about? Well, if you want to share. I think this was like, for instance, like on a book of that kind of America being the holy nation. Mm -hmm. We can turn this country around and if we, you know, these kind of things. Mm -hmm. But it had elements of it where it was like historical sites and then you go back on this time and this historical figure is on this ship and mm -hmm. it's just, you start going down the rabbit hole really quick and you're like, oh man. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like a bad sci-fi movie. Yeah. So. And I think something that it's, it's often hard for me in conversations is that people will tend to only view the polar opposites as the possible ways of interpreting. So like if I say or comment to someone who 
that you know it's not a we're not a Christian nation we're not Israel we're not those promises sometimes it's then well you don't care about our country and you don't want to vote for good leaders so there's a lot of places in which um, you know there's a little bit of nuancing it's not the very extreme view on one side or the other and so learning how the scripture apply. Um, I heard I heard a discussion again, kind of the anglicizing, where they were talking, and, and instead of to the English, one of the kind of person debating said, "Well, let's go back and look at the Greek, the original." Yes, and there's that can be interpreted a couple ways, and in this particular verse, it really makes sense to use this other word. Well, but I think this English word is better. And he said, "Well, you're so you're saying you prefer the King James over the Greek." Well, yeah, like that was kind of very revealing in that. Mm sense. Yeah. I mean, people who are into King James only, I mean, they're pretty serious about it and um, believe that you're taking away key texts of scripture that support the Trinity and all these other doctrines. And so they're, uh, there can be kind of a difficult bunch to kind of reason. Is that, and I haven't had much, have you had many? Yeah. Yeah, a little bit. Um, yeah, the first tactic is they'd ask you to look up a verse in the Bible, in mm-hmm. your Bible, and it's not there. And then they would share a verse that clearly proves like the Trinity. You know, these three testify, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's like, why is that in your Bible? And they have this whole conspiracy about why it's not there. Mm-hmm. And, and it's and like all the other ones are like uh, heretical. Almost. Well, yeah, it's a New Age translation. Mm-hmm. And right. it's like, yeah, it's very difficult to try to explain there's a suspicion of scholarship it, you know mm-hmm. there's elitism there's a conspiracy theory behind it it's um, but a lot of it I think is just kind of fear that um, they want to know that the Bible they read is actually God's word and they make an argument that in mm-hmm. God's providence he preserved the King James Bible mm-hmm. for us to read for all time yeah it kind of reminds me of when we talk about where we get the Bible and like sometimes we contrast how you know, there was a time, and we have all these lots of different um, ancient uh, manuscripts, and all the manuscripts, and we see the small errors and differences, and those manuscripts help us to see, you know, where kind of the small errors in translation of a particular letter or whatever, we can see from the other 90% that are correct, where those are, are actual errors and what the original text actually meant. Whereas with King James, it's almost like, a, I believe, like with the Quran. There was a time where collect all the Qurans, this is the official one, let's burn all the rest of them. Yeah. So there's one consistent version, and that has to be the one that's, that we go from. Yeah. I don't know if this is a good like thing to add on the King James subject or anything, but it's theory like you have, everybody is familiar with the likes of Shakespeare and, and all the old English, and so with the, with um, um, the King James version being in in that same style, it adds in their mind credibility because we were taught these things yeah. in school, and so mm-hmm. it just reinforces we should go to this one. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if that's reasonable yeah. to assume or anything. You know, yeah. what do the you King, think? The King James is this beautiful, elegant, you know, for its time. Yeah, it was a work of genius. Okay. No, no dissing that at all. Yeah. That the reason why it was written is so that a simple plowboy could understand scripture. 
Okay. Yeah, that was, um, I think it was Tyndale who wrote that. That was Tyndale's purpose. Of, he wanted the common man, because they all like spoke in Latin. The Bible was in Latin, so nobody could understand it. So he translated it to English, and people could take it in. But now English language has changed so much, it's hard. For the common person, it's like reading Shakespeare. Yeah. Yeah. Which is difficult. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's not easy. It takes a couple reads. <laughs> So okay, so let's go. Let's talk about over literalizing. So this is kind of just a failure to interpret the Bible like, in a sense, normal language. So it imposes kind of this strict view. This is what how we have to read this language, different than all other pieces of uh, writing literature that we read. So uh, an example might be uh, if you believe that John six thirty five. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. That must mean that the communion wafer is actually the flesh, yeah. the body of Christ. The wine is actually his blood. Right. So what about John 6.35? How does that inform us? Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. He's saying he's actually a loaf of bread. <laughs> <laughs> he's actually a door. He's actually a gate. I wanted to. I wanted to just jump on. You said literal, so yes. I was like, yep. he's, he's, he's really a loaf of bread. Right, we're in this. Yeah, we're in the same same chapter here. Well, he uses a metaphor at first. Again, mm -hmm. I am the bread of life. But if he actually meant it, he wouldn't have explained it the way he did after the semicolon. He says, he who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. So he clarifies his metaphor. Yeah. He actually explains it there. Yeah. yeah. And that's the best place to look for explanation of the metaphor, right? It's in the text itself. Yeah. Look at the verses before, look at the verses after. And I always ask myself, like, okay, is there any sign that the listeners or the disciples came away with the same interpretation that you're coming up with? Right? That they all say, okay, this is Jesus' body. I mean, like, this is really his body. This is really his blood. So looking for their, their teaching, looking at in the, in the Corinthians, looking at all the other places. Did they come away with that same? Okay. Maybe we've got time for a couple more. Legal, legalizing. Legalizing. Overemphasizing the letter of God's word at the expense of the spirit of the word. So... We have a home church movement start surveyed various biblical passages. There's a list here from one, two, three, four places in Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, Colossians, Philemon, and 2 John, and concluded that a home was the only acceptable place for worship because they see examples of that, descriptions of that in those texts. While homes are wonderful venues for worship, the Bible cites other places, such as hills, seashores, riversides, public buildings. Nowhere in the Bible is there a list of acceptable places. Um, and I, I'm trying to think if it says here. So we've got a few things to help differentiate. But notice that um, we talked about this just briefly. There's this difference that we've mentioned before between uh, texts that are descriptive, right? And then what's the other term? Prescriptive. Prescriptive, right? Descriptive, prescriptive. So we want to be careful not to confuse those two and to pay attention to when is the Bible describing this is just what happened. This is the way it worked. Versus saying this is what you ought to do. This is what you are commanded to do. 
And so there's a difference there. Sometimes you'll get into, you might be, someone might be um, having an issue with a prescriptive text and they go to a descriptive one to try and refute. Like the script, it says to do this, but they say, but they did this over here. Well, <laughs> which one has greater authority into what we ought to do? So in terms of what you ought to obey, we're looking at the prescriptive as primary, but the descriptive, right, we're learning from that history, learning from that example in terms of how was it being worked out? How was it being practiced? So some other things. Distinguish between the desired end and the means to an end. So um, we mentioned this briefly a second ago. What's the heart behind the command? For instance, in the point is the point of the command to our head coverings in 1 Corinthians 11, 5, uh, to sanction, I think that's to, supposed to be T-O, to sanction certain attire or promote submission. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 11. Just look at the context here. Right. Paul's writing to the Corinthians who had everything figured out in terms of how church should work, right? No issues at all. That maybe was a bit sarcastic. So, yeah, yeah. So he's giving lots of direction. And so in 1 Corinthians, or in 11.5. So let's look at verse 2 and then... We'll read through. It's a long passage here. Oh, where do we start? Noah looks like he wants to read. Can you, can you read for me, Noah? How about 2 to 16? That'll help us get a good context. Now I commend you because you are me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covers dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head was shaven. For a wife will not cover her head, for if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is in the image of the glory of God. But woman is in the glory of man. For a man, for man was not made from for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was a man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, nevertheless in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made for man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourself. Is it is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. Uh, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. 
If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Whew. Crystal clear, right? Okay. So let's think about, like, what is the, if you could kind of take the context of those passages, what is kind of the key issue or one of the key issues that's going on in this passage? He's mentioning head coverings, but as he speaks to the men and the women and the believers within this church, what's kind of behind that? So how the men and women were designed to relate to one another. So yeah. head covering has something to do with how that communicated at that time, how many women were intended to relate to one another, and what they communicated about their relationship with one another. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's a certain, like you said, there's a certain thing that at that time it was communicating something um, to the other people in their culture, in their church. Notice that, uh, I don't know if you guys, I have a couple of notes. In ancient times, married women often wore headscarves to what? show they're married. And then he says, notice that he says, uh, with her prophesies with her head uncovered, dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. What's the note? Do you guys have a note about shaved heads or short hair in that time? I just have what, this is in my commentary here, is just, in that day, only a prostitute or a feminist would shave her head. If a Christian woman rejected the covering that symbolized her submission in that culture, she might as well have shaved her head. The shame was similar. So okay. I think pointing out a cultural reference. And so in that time, that was kind of a public way of saying that you're rejecting that, that headship, in a sense. Yeah, I think in that day and age, um, Men look like men and women look like women. And mm-hmm. I think in every culture up until now, um, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? There's, mm-hmm. there's always like feminine dress and masculine dress. Mm-hmm. And when you cross over from one to the other, you're rejecting that distinction. Mm-hmm. And I think this is actually a really good passage to give commentary on mm-hmm. just the trans movement. It's God recognizes the difference. Mm-hmm. How it's expressed in this culture. Yeah. And he talks about, like, he uses head literally, but he also mm-hmm. uses it in that first part, um, kind of symbolically, right? Where he says, I want you to understand the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, right? So you, he's, you get from that context that he's really concerned with that headship, that leadership, that kind of roles more important than the physical head of the woman or the physical head of the... And another question is, like, we talked about previously with First Timothy, there's this appeal to creation, right? Or with marriage, it's all the way throughout. Do we see a concern or a expression about head coverings anywhere in other parts of Scripture outside of the Corinthian church? I think that's a valid question to ask. In the, the paper, it talks about, I guess the question, I'm trying to find it, about, is it, is it about head coverings or submission? I'm going to push, it's not even, the text doesn't, maybe submission's in there, but there's actually a more positive way to understand it in the text mm-hmm. itself. There's a glory to a woman mm-hmm. being a woman in proper relationship to her husband. Mm-hmm. There's an honor to a woman being a woman in mm-hmm. proper relationship to her husband. The text isn't just saying, woman, submit. Mm-hmm. It's saying there's a glory and there's an honor in being who you are. 
or designed to be, and in that sense, in proper relation to your husband as well. And he also reverses with a man in a similar mm -hmm. way. Yeah, and it talks about the man with the long hair, right? Like, and I think that kind of goes back to your point. Like in that time, that was very uncommon for you to have long hair. So kind of what we're doing here is kind of that point three two, right? We're determining is the, is this outward expression uh, is it an absolute thing for all people at all times, or is this something that was addressing a specific issue that's going on in their church, and that's the way in which it was happening? Um, and I think like what you're saying, what is the motivation? Not not just uh, for the woman to be in submission, but it was addressing both men and women to kind of accept and find their glory in their proper role. The head covering is interesting because today, if Naomi were to wear a head covering, it wouldn't communicate the same. that she's being particularly feminine or in relation to, my, to me as, as my wife. It might even be kind of weird in certain mm -hmm. contexts, right? It, I mean, I'd make sure it was a cute one. It would be cute. But it wouldn't communicate what the text is trying to get at in our situation. Now, there might be mm -hmm. in other countries, other cultures, maybe there is still that dynamic, mm -hmm. in which case the text would more directly apply those external elements. Mm -hmm. But there are churches today where people where women will wear head coverings, like only a few women, to try to honor this, and that's, I think it's honorable, they want to honor this, mm -hmm. but it doesn't actually communicate what they think it does. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, like, what you're, being aware of what you're communicating by the way your, your outward ex expression is kind of the heart of, yeah. like, when you come into worship, we want the direction and the focus to be on Christ. And if we wear or look a certain way that's going to bring a distraction or confusion or a different message that could be like, I don't know what the year was where this became the symbol, but like if I had a beautiful shirt that had a big rainbow with all the different multicolored stripes, right? There's some places that are going to interpret that as like a affirming the the different genders, gender roles. Yeah, I look at um, just being a child of the 80s, you know, the glam metal movement where yeah. you had poison and they all dressed up like women. You know, the makeup, the hair, and everything. And it's like, why did they do that? And I think, um, you know, there's something subversive about gender bending. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what we're seeing today when men do that, I'm going to do man to woman instead of the other way around, but when mm -hmm. men do that, it basically is, um, no one can tell me my gender, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. It's like, it's a, a rejection of who God made them and how they are to express themselves. Mm -hmm. um, that's why I think it really caught on in the 70s and, and 80s, just gender bending, and that's, and I yeah. think, to a certain extent, I think that's what's going on here, is just, I don't care, I don't need to act like a woman, or act like a man, um, I can tend to find my own way. Yeah. Okay, so I have an idea, I'm not sure if it's here. Okay, but let's look. It's open for discussion. Yes. we got three minutes. Yeah, plenty of time. <laughs> Cliffhanger. <laughs> so kind of like bringing it back to our church tendencies, uh -huh. like our, our like beautiful, I'm, I'm jumping over to, um, more the legalizing concept away yes. from First Corinthians gotcha. and 13. Um, so I'm in conversation with some friends who are part of a lovely conservative Bible church. Mm -hmm. um, and there, um, a few of the members have what seem to be some legitimate concerns about some of the, um, 
some the um, some of the things that are going on in the church, mm -hmm. and some um, and as they express their concerns, they've been told by church leadership that they need to not talk about that because you only need to, going to Ephesians, like you only need to, you should only talk about what builds up. You should only speak what gives grace to the moment and builds up. And so expressing concern has become a matter, they've said, you're not building up the church by expressing concern. Mm. And so they've like the Ephesians 4, 29, yeah. only what's wholesome. Yeah. They've, they've mar a marginalized expressing concern with mm -hmm. disobedience mm -hmm. to Ephesians 4. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, they're taking that text, and that's the legalizing the uh -huh. way of altering the the way in which uh, like talking about issues. saying nice things, yeah, not helpful right. things. Uh -huh. Yep. According to that, there's no room for admonishment, if that's the case. Yeah, or rebuke or correction. Or correction. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, that's very true. I, I switch back to the head cover. Okay. We're <laughs> right, we still have 60 seconds. Back in the 50s, when I was a child many years ago, uh, some churches interpreted head covering that women wore hats to church. Oh. And if you didn't wear a hat to church, you were just way off. Yeah. Wow. Because you were not biblical because yeah. you did not have a head covering. Right. And so, like, we love that they were trying to honor the yeah. scripture we would talk about. Legalization type, yeah. I think, thing. You do this because we say so, because mm -hmm. it has to be covered yeah. in so, some manner. Yeah. So I think when we see that it's not just a personal interpretive issue, like this is an issue especially that we see in our churches. And so it's something that, if it's something that you see happening in a broader context, right, it takes some time of walking and talking through the scriptures and bringing up the other texts about rebuke and correct and studying that to try and help that conversation move towards uh, you know, more biblical interpretation. Yeah. So we'll probably finish up next time. So let me pray for us. And we'll move on with our worship. Lord, this has been a, a wonderful and encouraging time of discussion. I do pray that as we talk um, and listen to one another, that your Holy Spirit would really remind us of how we each one of us can have our own blind spots we can have our own tendencies to approach the scripture that may be getting in the way of truly seeing not only the the meaning there but the full meaning the beauty behind what you're saying i pray that you would help us to um, strip away um, as best we can the the cultural and the the time and the place that we're in now and to really get into the heart of your scriptures. I do pray that you'd help each one of us to devote time to reading your word, time away from all of the influences of other forms of media that saturate us in our culture, and help us to find time to just be alone with you in our own reading and in the fellowship of others reading and studying your word. We ask that you be with us, continue to guide us, and help us to worship you as we go the rest of this morning. In your name, amen.